So, uh, before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is April 11th, 2022. And my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm speaking with Woody Burton in his home in Whiteland, Indiana, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So, just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born in Indianapolis, June 11th, 1945. And uh, what were your parents' names? Bonnie and Charles Burton. Okay. And uh, when did your family get to Indiana? I don't know. I was born here, so I do not okay. know Okay. All right. That's fine. Uh, what were your parents' occupations? Mom was a waitress for 24 years, and my natural birth dad was a criminal. Okay. Um, let's see. You had, let's see, one sibling? Two. Two, okay. And a stepsister. Oh, okay. Got and it. My brother, Dan my sister Sylvia, and my stepsister Jackie. That was my stepdad's daughter. Got it, okay. Um, how would you describe your childhood? I was very blessed because I was, I was five years old when my dad went to prison for what he had done. Mm -hmm. And about several months later, mom got married again, and the man she married was an uneducated, hard-working foundry worker. Okay. He actually moved up to supervisor of the whole plant eventually. Wow. I mean, that's how hard he worked. And mom was a waitress. And so we were raised in Brightwood. And I felt like I had a fairly balanced er er raising. Uh, Brightwood was a gang neighborhood. You'd see people getting beat up and stuff going on. Just that's, this, yeah. That was nothing new to me. It was what I called in the old TV series, the Archie Bunker neighborhood. Every race, nationality, uh, mm. religion all lived in the area and so I was raised in an environment where these were my friends kids I went to school with of all colors races nationalities and religions and they were my friends so yeah. I, I'm very blessed uh, the one thing that I think was good about being raised up is my mom always taught us and my dad always taught us if you want something in life work for it and pay for it your word counts for everything mm -hmm. and uh, don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. If you get knocked down, you get back up again. Right. Mom always talks that she'd stand up. She was five foot tall, and she'd stand up my six foot eight dad and get right in his face. Yeah. And he'd knock her down, she'd get right back up again. And she always taught us that. And I, so we were poor, but we weren't real poor. I mean, we lived from paycheck to paycheck. And my stepdad was a good provider, and mom worked at Air's Tea Room, and she made a, a little bit. But we always... We, we didn't know we were poor. We were happy. You know, I mean, if I wanted something in life, I was taught, you know, I'd get a paper out or, you know, I'd mow grass, you know, I, I mean, because we didn't have money to go buy it. So yeah, yeah. it was a different. So I, I was really happy because I felt like uh, I didn't know anything different. And my brother was a good influence on me because he was always, you know, working and he was a golfer. Okay. And uh, so we, we had a pretty good relationship. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, who would you say were the most influential people in your childhood, then? I'd say my stepdad, my mom, and my brother. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, what did you know about your family's political beliefs growing up? Back then or now? Uh, as a child. As a child, we didn't really... It was a different time. And my mom and dad were always conservative. My stepdad and mom okay. were always conservative. And they were somewhat, you know, in their day, they uh, they were the old school about, you know, 
white Christians is everything and everything else yeah. is not, you know. And uh, that's just the way they were. And so, so um, politics would get in once in a while and they'd talk about it, but it wasn't a big deal. And uh, Dan's actually the one that really got us start, kind of started in politics because he took an interest in it and was watching some of it on television and uh, decided he wanted to get involved, so he got involved in politics. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, so what schools did you attend growing up? Went to public school 73, Robert Browning, and I went to Tech High School, and that was it. Uh, I was told in... Uh, the eighth grade, we went to a counselor that I should go to a school and learn a trade because I wasn't smart enough to go to college. Okay. And so I went to tech and I became a truck mechanic. Uh, I learned how to work on diesels and I went to work for Cummins Mid-States, a dealership that was in three states. And I worked there for seven years. During that time, I was always selling things, I, you know, making money on the side. Mm -hmm. So I went to the owner of the company one time and said, uh, Mr. Snyder, I, I believe I could sell these diesel engines. And he said, what are you, are not smart enough? Mm. Well, my mom always told me, don't ever let anybody tell you you can't. Right. So I went to auctioneer, real estate, and insurance school, part-time, you know, and wow. went to work. Got licensed in all of them, and the very first house that I sold, I spent my commission on this ring. Oh, okay. And I took it back to Mr. Snyder. I said, Mr. Snyder, what do you think of my ring? Wow, where did you get that? And I said, it was a commission on my first real estate sale. <laughs> and I was, I was doing it yeah. part time. Yeah. Well, about a month and a half later, he called me into his office and said, oh. Uh -huh. And he says, have you ever thought about teaching? And I said, teaching? I said, well, I got high school. I don't have any college. I can't teach. He says, I can help you get a vocational teacher's license. And he says, I think you'd be an excellent teacher. Hmm. So he referred me to Lincoln Tech and Tech High School, and they both hired me. I worked. I went back to the wow. high school I went to and taught nights and daytimes at Lincoln Tech. So I did that for three years, and then I got into the real estate business. Interesting. Okay, so a lot of different stuff. Now, the one thing caveat about this: yeah. all my report cards through grade school said Woody needs to work on his reading. Woody has a reading problem. Woody, blah, 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 blah. When I was seventy years old, I found out I was dyslexic. Oh, okay. Interesting. There was no such thing as dyslexia. Yeah, it didn't exist. Yeah. Wow. That is interesting. So, in school, did you have any favorite subjects? I, you know, just met, I, I was a goof off, okay? okay? But I enjoyed working with my hands. In grade school, we had what we called shop class, and I got a cutting board I made. My dad bought the first Corvette that came to Indianapolis in 1953. Foundry worker. Yeah, you probably would hear the Corvettes. Right, there. and uh, but um, I did a cutting board, and I drew that on the cutting board and made it on the cutting board. And I was always doing things like that, and I liked to tinker around. And my stepdad was a tinker. He would put stuff together, and you wouldn't want to get near it, but it always worked. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just do crazy wiring stuff and all. He would, but he'd fix it himself. And so I, and he and I were very close because I was only five when they got married. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I was almost six, but uh, but uh, he was my dad. He were, he yeah. He was the influence on me, and so you know, like when I bought my first car, he went out there with me and we tinkered around with it and all that kind of stuff and uh, raised the hood and did things because he liked that and I liked it. So yes, the things I enjoyed, I think, was just tinkering around and I enjoyed working with people more than anything else. It was fun yeah. to go out and help people and work with people. So that's that's probably why I got in politics. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. 
Were you a part of any like high school clubs or sports teams? Or? Played. I played basketball um, in grade school. In high school, I played football my freshman year and messed my knee up. Oh no! Okay. We were at Tech High School. That's a true story. We they we were really good our freshman year. So they put us up against the second string varsity and we beat them. Wow. Well, then they put us up against the first string varsity. And this guy was about, a, about that much shorter than me, and I knocked him down the first time. I was a lineman. Uh-huh. I knocked him down the first time, and he just smiled at me. The next time, I woke up in the locker room, and my knee was on myself. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you know, you learn. You, know, you just have to kind of go along with it and learn. So, That's crazy. So football was it. And, uh, but I, I always enjoyed just selling and dealing with people and helping. So how did you view the state of Indiana growing up? Did you did you think much about like, oh, okay, I'm living in Indiana versus some other states? Or I really, you know, I really didn't think much about that because my environment was rough. Brightwood was a rough neighborhood. Uh-huh. I got married when I was 18 the first time. Wow. I lived in Brightwood when I got married. So yeah. I, I lived there for several years. And then I finally, my, and here again, my stepdad steps in. I-70's building a new road through the west side at that okay. time. It wasn't there. And they were selling the houses. So I bought a house for $500. Wow. And my dad and I moved it. Wow. And we moved it into Mars Hill. And that's where I lived for about eight or nine years. Okay. And that's when I got into the real estate business and started enjoying some success because I sold more real estate my first year with F.C. Tucker than anybody else in the office but I had the lowest average sale price because I was selling to first-time home buyers. I was helping young people get into a home ownership. And I, I wasn't doing it for the money. I was doing all right. I was doing it because it was fun. Yeah. Watching the look on those kids' face, when I could say to them, congratulations, you own a home. Yeah. And so uh, I, when that happened, then I eventually moved out to Avon, and I was out there for about seven or eight years. And yeah. Then Tucker made me a manager and a vice president on the south side, and I came. that's when I moved down here, and that okay. was 74. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Uh, let's see here. So after you graduated from high school and you started working, how did your awareness of politics change? I was aware of it, and I always voted. From the first time I was old enough to vote, I voted. Yeah. And I think that was because my brother was involved. See, he was in the state legislature. He served in the House and the Senate in Indiana. Yeah. And when he decided to run for Congress the first time, that was 1980. Wow. And I was his aide. I drove him everywhere because nobody else could put up with him. You know I mean? The, <laughs> the pressure you're under yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah, sure. And I, but he was my brother. I'd take it, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I became vastly aware of politics and some of the stuff that goes on, the good stuff and the dirty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he got beat twice. Yep. And yeah. then he came back and got beat again. Then he came back one. And uh, I worked with him in all. I didn't work as the first one was the one I really worked in. I I lived with him day and night. I was his chauffeur everywhere he went. I was his driver. Yeah. And uh, so we had it, but that really got me involved. I learned about the inner workings of it. But then I kind of was, and when I lived in Avon, I was more interested in real estate. I wasn't really paying a lot of attention other than voting. But I moved to Johnson County, and immediately because of my brother, the precinct committeeman coming in, and you know obviously. Registered us. Oh, you're what are you Danbury. So the county chairman came to me. He says, I'd like for you to get involved in our partner. I says, Fine, you know. <laughs> and he says, I want you to chair my young Republicans. And so that's how I got started in Johnson County politics. Yeah. So I we had a pretty good working group. So that's that's kind of how it started. Then he appointed me 
to run for, back in those days, there were 27 precincts. Mm -hmm. He says, I want you to run for county chairman. Or not, I mean, county council. And I says, okay. Yeah. Yeah. What's the county councilman do? He says, well, you'll need to talk to some of the other councilmen. I don't think he even knew. <laughs> and, uh, and so, of course, he put the word out to the 27 precinct committee. <laughs> It was yep. queuing, you know, there's no problem. I, and I was on the council. And it was neat because I found out and learned more about it. And I learned about government. I learned about dollars, about balancing budgets. And that's probably where I became even more conservative because I could see waste, you know, people getting paid to sit around and do nothing but read newspapers. And uh, so that's that's kind of how we got started, and I think. And so Johnson County was where I really got engaged in politics. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Now... When did you get married? The first time I got married in 1963. I was okay. 18 years old. Uh -huh. I was married for 13, 79. I got divorced. Okay. And Volley and I got married in 82, Volley? 82. Pressure's on, yeah. Now, here's the story about that. Yeah. I, I was always taught never to deal with, I don't like failure. I don't like to yeah. lose. Sure. So when I got divorced, it was my idea. Mm -hmm. I was not happy in my marriage. We had adopted a boy. I've got a son, Woody. He's adopted. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, she wasn't a bad person. It just wasn't good. Yeah. yeah. And so I initiated the divorce, and I really felt like I had failed. It took mm -hmm. me about three years to make that decision. And on mm -hmm. my birthday, June 11th, 1979, I got divorced. <laughs> That's a true story of the wow. court. And... Uh, um, so Volley and I did it for about four years because I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to get, I wasn't going to do that again. Yeah. I wasn't going to have no divorce. And she had two kids and I had one and my son lived with me and yep. hers lived with her. And uh, so we dated for about four years. And so on Christmas, I gave her a, an engagement ring and we got married in January the 16th. Yeah. And, and people ask her, well, how come you guys got married so quick? She says, "This I dated the son of a, for four years, and I wouldn't go give him a chance to change his mind. <laughs> Isn't that right, Molly? And so, and we moved in, and we had a blended family, and it wasn't the it wasn't the Brady bunch. It was a, yeah, but it was good. We we almost went broke uh, because the interest rate. She, she came into the real estate business with me, and the interest rates went to eighteen percent. You couldn't yeah. sell any houses, and and uh, we were on the verge of bankruptcy. And uh, I dug myself, we dug ourselves out of that hole, and then I started buying investment properties, and, mm -hmm. and uh, so I said, that's never going to happen again, and it, it hasn't. We've been financially stable ever since. Yeah. Wow. So I've been married to her for, yeah. since 1982. That's great. Um, so how would you say uh, your family influenced your uh, political career? I think it influenced, I think that influenced me strongly. When you say family, yeah. my wife, mm -hmm. my my brother, yep. my mom and dad, they were always barking, you know, you know about the dirty Democrats, you know, you know that crazy yeah. stuff they do. And uh, um, so I just think that I, I just felt like, you know, that I enjoyed it. And then when I, like I said, we lived in Johnson County, and I was being encouraged by the, the then county chairman. Yeah. He took a liking to me, and at first it was because my brother was a congressman. Well, they didn't even know him. You know, they just knew he was a congressman. Yeah. But the point was, is that they took a liking to me, and I took a liking to them, and they made me. They included me. Yeah. And back in those days, you were a vice precinct committeeman or a committeeman, and you know, you held an office. And when somebody wanted a job at the state, 
you had to sign off for those people, and then the, the vice committeeman, the committeeman, the vice county chairman, yep. the chairman, before they could get a job at the state. They were they were political patronage. I mean, that's what it was, and uh, so it, it was very inclusive, and I felt like I belonged. Uh, Volley wasn't real happy because the first time we got engaged in a real race was in 1980. Was that 86, Volley? When I got beat. Uh, yeah, I think it was. 84. Maybe it was 84. I ran for I ran for state representative, and there were 56 precincts, and I won three. Mm. It was ugly. And it really hurt her because yeah. she'd never been around that stuff, and, you know, people talk awful about yeah. you. Know, right. just, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, so, but she's always, every time I've run, she's supported me 100%, and things get done, and people think I do it. Yeah, she does it. I mean, it's she's very organized. She was an accountant in her younger days. Uh, she likes to do those kind of things, and she's very good at it. And, uh, and she always backed me a hundred percent, and never asked for any credit. Although we did, Mike Pence did give her the Sagamore of the Wall bash. Yeah, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I took Mike Pence out the first time I ever went to oh, really? campaign. Yeah, <laughs> back in '88. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So. Okay. So, uh, who would you say then were like your political heroes when you were first like getting interested in running for the general assembly and stuff? Definitely my brother. Yeah, no question about it. Dan was my hero because he was he wasn't like the rest of them. He he always got a lot of headlines because he wasn't afraid to say what he thought. Yeah, and uh, he stood out and and he seemed to get things done. Yeah, and and I and then when we got the real estate business, he pretty well was hands off. I mean, he'd come in. And, you know, fly some orders and then leave, and then I just run the business, or Volley and I would run it. And uh, but uh, he was always kind of my role model. He, you know, he got a fire truck. Yep, I got yep. a fire truck. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but but I but I think he was the biggest influence. And then when I got into the political arena, I found that you know, especially when I got to the state house, I found that there were good people on both sides of the political fence. As corny sure. as that sounds. Yeah, uh, one of my best friends down there is Vernon Smith, and they're a more liberal person in Indiana than Vernon Smith. But he and I are buddies. <laughs> yeah, we just don't vote the same, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, but uh, but I think I think you know I, I learned Evan By was probably my first real experience. I had been in there for a few months. This is my first year. And I get a call. The governor wants to see you. What's he want with me? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I go in there, and it's just me and he, Evan By myself. And he starts to give me the old spiel, you know, that's like anybody does. He was, a, he, was a, he was a nice man, he really was. And I says, Governor, why am I here? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just asking. He says, well, quite frankly, I've got a bill I'm going to talk to you about, and my party's not supporting it, and I need your help. What do you say to that? Wow. You know, and that taught me at that time that whether we agreed politically on everything or not, there were things that he wanted to do that was the right thing to do, and he wasn't above yeah. going out and talking to both sides of the fence. Yeah. And I learned a lot. Frank O'Bannon was that way. Now, uh, uh, well, you know what? I think most of them have been pretty good governors. You know, I, 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 most of them have done a pretty good job about being fair and accessible to legislators. And so I, I think that, that those, uh, I'd say that, you know, that he was an influence on me, Evan I was. Mitch Daniels was a heck of an influence on me because he was a no-nonsense guy. Mm -hmm. Whenever you went to his office, he hardly ever wore a tie. You walk in, you sit down, or if he did wear a tie, it was just a shirt, and it was just you and him. And mm -hmm. then he didn't beat around the bush. He laid it right on the line, and if he told you something, you could take it to the bank. Yeah. And he got things done. If something didn't work right, he'd change it and move and do something else. 
And uh, so I'd say he was probably one of the bigger influences on me, uh, uh, Mitch Daniels. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so did you have like a particular campaign strategy when you were running for the General Assembly? Always be accessible mm. to the people. Yeah. Always. Yeah. I held more town meetings than most legislators. I was in every parade with that fire truck. We gave out over 300,000 fire hats during my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if uh, One of the things that bothered Volley when I got elected was that I, I put my phone number on everything. She said, people be calling me all the time. Yeah. I said, that's what I'm supposed to do. Right, right. And I was also managing real, multiple offices for Carpenter at the same mm-hmm. time. Well, my cell phone bill went through the roof back in those days. Yeah. They called me up at the state house. I was the only one who had a cell phone down yeah. for a while. My phone would ring in the house chamber, and somebody yelled, Woody, Woody. I had to learn how to turn the ringer off. But now everybody's got one. But, yeah. but, um, uh, but I think being accessible, and what really made me feel good was when somebody would come to me that truly had a problem and needed help, and I could actually get something done. You know, I mean, I know that sounds corny. But I think that's what a legislator is supposed to do. You know, if somebody has a problem and it's legitimate, and we know somebody can make a phone call and help, what's wrong with that? Yeah. I don't see anything wrong with that. Matter of fact, I'll show you a picture. I don't want to go out. I'm going to show you my garage in a little bit. Uh, when I did the dyslexia thing, mm-hmm. uh, I was at the fair, the county fair. This lady walks up to me and she says, uh, Mr. Burton, can I speak to you? And I said, Sure. You know, that's, that's why I'm down there. I was down there every night because just. The talk yeah. every night. Volley liked the fair food. I liked to just stand around the t- tent and talk to anybody who walked in. And um, of course, my fire truck was always there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but uh, but she says, "What do you know about dyslexia?" And I said, "That's a learning disorder." Oh, Representative Burton is a lot more than that. So she talked. She burned my ear for about forty-five minutes. And I thought this guy's pretty sharp. So about three weeks later, I was holding a town meeting, and one person showed up. Mm-hmm. Her. Wow. And for three hours, I got educated on dyslexia. She had three kids with dyslexia. She was a scientist at Lilly's that retired from Lilly's to take care of her kids in homeschool. Wow. And to this day, I work with her, Cheryl Clemens. She's a great gal. As a matter of fact, she and I are on the board of directors of the Dyslexia Foundation for uh, the Scottish Rite. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got her on there. I, they put me on. That's how I got her on there. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so... The first year I carried legislation about that, the education system went too keen on it. Well, we don't use that. We don't talk about that stuff. You know, we, you know that's for the professionals or that, medical people. That's not for us. And I said, Maloney, you get a kid in kindergarten that's got a little bit of a learning disability. You need to identify that now or it's going to cost you a lot more down the road feeding them on welfare because it can't work. Mm-hmm. I said, I, I, you know, I, that's just how I felt. Yeah. So I carried the bill and... Uh, it was really interesting because, man, I didn't realize. You know one in five people that are born with some form of dyslexia? Mm-hmm. One in five. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's a national statistic. Yeah. And so I, I didn't know that. And so this lady continued to educate me, and I kept working on the bill. And so when it, when it came to, I got it out of the House. I had to work at it a little bit, but I got it out of the House. It went over to the Senate, and uh, there must have been 300 people out in that hallway wanting that bill. I couldn't believe it. And a little girl standing there, nine years old, holding a sign, and uh, it said, "My, let me get it, I'll just show it to you. Sure, yeah. <laughs> she was standing there holding a sign. 
nine years old. Uh-huh. And you can read it if you want to. But I almost started crying. And I, I mean, you imagine 300 people, and I walked up to her, and I said, well, hi there. And yeah. she's very quiet and shy, and she just kind of looked at me a little bit, and I thought, I'm going to get this bill passed. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's standing there like that, and and later on, I got more pictures I'll show you out in the garage area where she grew older, and she kept showing up the dyslexia when I did legislation in the future. But the point was, here's a case where the lady, the young girl had a problem, and she entered, and she was learning. And I mean, you know, my name is Aaron. I'm dyslexic. Before I found out, I used to cry in my pillow at night thinking I was stupid. Then I found out that I was dyslexic, that, that what dyslexic is, what, that I am not stupid. I just learn differently. Please vote for this bill. Yeah. And I thought, wow, and she made that. Yeah. <laughs> that was, her mom didn't do that. Yeah. And so my point is, is that, we, of course, we passed it. But again, that's and then right after that's when I found out I was dyslexic. But I, again, you can't imagine the warming of my heart knowing that little girl got some help. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I bet. Okay, the bill's nice. Okay, great. I passed the bill. Big deal. But I helped somebody, and I think that's what's important. Yeah. So what? So what exactly did the your legislation on on sort of helping dyslexic children? What did that do exactly? The first bill made them identify it. Okay. It was not an, it wasn't even used in the schools, the word was. Yeah. So what I did is have them come up and identify if they see a child that seems to be shy, backing away, uh, having trouble reading or writing numbers down, at least notify somebody and have and notify somebody in the school system that this child might be dyslexic. Yeah. And have them checked. Yeah. By a professional in the school system. And then the next one uh, that I passed two years later, now that was uh, Aaron Houchin carried the bill and I carried it in the house. And that bill said that they would, grades one through three, or kindergarten through three, teach the teachers how to identify signs of dyslexia and have somebody in the school system that is, that is qualified to analyze that for that individual. So in other words, here's a child that we think might be dyslexic. It's not going to be just, We're not going to put them. Hey, honey, we want you to visit with this person, mm-hmm. and this person going to sit and talk to them. Yep. And if that's the case, call the parents and hey, or well, the, of course the parents would be involved anyway. I think that's how I wrote it. The parents had to be engaged and agree to it. But the point was, is that that's what we did, and and I, we're getting results from it. All over the state, we're hearing good things about. This is a long way to go. It's like anything else, you know. After it's a big deal for a while, then it kind of goes away. The funniest story of it all, though was the bill signing on the first bill. I went to the governor's office and they said, well, we're, we're setting you up for the signing of the bill and uh, you're limited to 14 people in the office. This is, that's not gonna work. I mean, there's gonna be a lot of people here for that bill signing and I don't think it would be wise for the governor to do that. Well, that's what it's gonna be. I said, okay, well, you tell the governor, I'll, look, I'll bring a few people in. I said, but there's gonna be a few people out in the hall wishing they'd be there too. Yeah. Probably a couple hundred. Well, when it happened, they, they announced two days before, well, we're going to do it out in the, uh, the rotunda. There must have been three, 400 people there. And the governor was out there for over an hour. Oh, my God. <laughs> but he didn't know. This is this Holcomb. He didn't know that that thing was that big of a deal. Yeah. And it was huge. And so that was kind of a neat feeling, too, because I felt like maybe I enlightened the governor a little bit that this is a bigger deal than people yeah. think it is. Definitely. I, I didn't say that, but that's what I felt. Cool. Okay. 
Um, so do you remember who your main opponent was for that first election that you ran? First election, my main opponent was uh, Crabtree, Dan Crabtree. Okay. And he was a union executive, a local, he was a local, I, I don't know what they call it when they're, can, they're, they're for the county coordinator. He, he taught at uh, uh, Center, or I mean, uh, uh, Clark Pleasant School Systems. And very nice guy. We went to, we went to the same church. And uh, he was a sharp, strong campaigner. And I, I beat him up by three or four points finally. It was. It was. It wasn't. And this is a Republican territory, and I, he he got like forty six percent of the vote. Wow. Oh yeah, the ISPA put a lot of money. They put a bunch of money in that race because they wanted to seat. And um, then the next year, I had another teacher, and he he wasn't serious. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So. So what were the, like the main uh, issues that you campaigned on? Back then. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh. I'd probably tell you right down to the T. I, I think well, some of the stuff that I campaigned on was, was uh, let me see if I can find it. Sure. Okay. I think some of the issues I campaigned on, the, the, the usual stuff like efficient government and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I campaigned about roads and streets because our roads were not in real good shape at that time. But my main issue was, in almost all my stuff, in my letters that I wrote to them and everything, was being accessible to the people and listening to them. My, that was my major campaign issue. I sent out letters, and my letters said things like, uh, and, and back in those days, the technology wasn't available, but Dan gave me, got me a software thing for my, my computer that would put the names of the voters in the body of the letter. Mm. So I wrote letters. And Dan helped me draft them, and they say something like, uh, "Dear John and Mary, just wanted to send you some information. I'm I'm running for state representative, and one of the things that I'd really like to know is what issues are important to you. So many times politicians get elected, and they never listen. It's my job to represent you if I get elected. Yeah, John and Mary, would you please share with me your thoughts on issues that you think are important? Mm -hmm. That's kind of well, then, then I start getting notes back. You know, people call and look at them. And, and one of them, a little old lady, wrote back, I can't believe you actually sent me a personal letter and sent it back to me, you know. And uh, so then I sent out the second one, and it said, thank you. Many of you responded, and here are the issues, some of the issues that you told me were important. So what I did, my whole campaign was engaging the public yeah. in what I was doing. And that had never happened before that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe somebody else did, and I didn't know, but, I mean, in Johns County, it hadn't happened. And, uh, that's that, when I won that one, there were 66 precincts. And the guy that beat me before, he'd yeah. been in 24 years, he got three precincts. Wow. That's a true story. Wow. In the valley. Yeah. So, and I think the only difference was, was he, and he was a good legislator. He worked on the Ways and Means for years, as uh, Jack Mullendorf. And uh, he worked on the Ways and Means, and he was dedicated to that budget. But he was not a talker. He'd only hold town meetings when he had to, and he didn't say hardly anything. And uh, his what? His mailing list. Oh, yeah. When I, went, when I got elected, he, his mailing list had 50, 57, 58 people. I said, wow. <laughs> I said, I got 13,000. <laughs> you don't see the look on my staff's face when I said that. <laughs> yeah, oh, I wasn't kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I did. So... Uh, but uh, uh, but he just he my 
the issue, as you questioned, pure and simple, was I showed that I cared about the people that I was going to represent, and yeah. I was going to listen to them. Yeah. As a matter of fact, my slogan was, he listens, he cares, he takes action. That was yeah. my campaign material then. Oh, okay. He listens, he cares, he takes action. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So, what did you think about the election process in general? I think that in Indiana, we have an extremely good election process. Uh, I'm real concerned because when you start going to mail-in ballots without some kind of verification, mm -hmm. like many states are doing, mm -hmm. you can rig the elections. Yeah. Uh, you can tamper with voting machines. There's a lot of places you can do it. In Indiana, if you want to vote by mail-in, you send in an application they verify that you're on the voting records, they send you back a ballot, and then you send the ballot in. There's a verification process that guarantees that we're not voting grave, grave headstones. Right. And, uh, and so I, I think it's a good process. Um, I miss the importance of precinct committee people. Mainly, uh, we've gone to vote centers and stuff like that, early voting and all that. And one of the things that I always felt like was extremely important was you take a precinct committee person and they were they had a little bit of authority you know a little you know a little notch in their yeah. in their belt there that uh, hey you know I'm kind of important I go out they I, we used to go out and register voters we go door to door and register voters uh, I was a vice chairman and the chairman she comes come on what are we going to knock on doors you know and, and register voters we just did that right and and also the process of being involved in government you know the knowing people had to. And I, I'm not for, for the idea that everybody has to sign off for you, but the idea that there was some engagement of, of them, that they had to work the polls, they had to feed the poll workers, and there was something important about that, and I think that's gone. Okay. And the, the thing that bothers me is the apathy it might cause. If people have no part of it, you know, they're, they're not important to the process. Yeah. And I think that, that bothers me more than anything about our election process. It is what it is. We're in an evolutionary period where we're going to more electronics, more gadgets, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but anytime they want to change it, I, I, I hope and pray that the one thing they do is they have verification, substantial verification of who's voting. Sure. Because there's a lot of states that don't. I mean, I, well, I shouldn't say a lot. There's some states yeah. they don't verify. They just in New York, you know that they they'll allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. Wow, did not State know elections in New York, you don't have to be an American to vote. Wow. Now, how's that? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I don't want that here. <laughs> uh, so what was your reaction when you found out that you won your first election? Oh, I was excited. I mean, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? I had a little party here at my house that night. Now, at this time, I lived up in Greenwood, yeah. and I had a house similar to this. But where that bar area is, there was a stairway that went down to a full basement. Oh, okay. It was a huge room. Well, I had, what did we have, 250 people, Molly? And 250, 300 people. And I, I had wow. deputy sheriffs upstairs down because I had people coming I didn't know. And it was, just a, it was just a huge celebration because it was a huge victory. But I worked hard for it. I mean, I, you know, Molly and I, out, we, we beat on doors and we called people and it responded. And, uh, I mean, I just, I really believe the only reason I won is I think they felt like I cared. Yeah. I, and I really believe that. Yeah, that makes sense. So did you change your campaign strategies for future elections or the same? It's always been the same. He listens, 
he cares, he takes action. And I don't use that slogan anymore, but it was, or I don't now because I'm out. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I always, I drove a van all from the day when I was elected. I had a white van. Well, for a little while I had a blue one, but it had Woody Burton State Representative contact, my email and all that stuff on there. And I did that because I wanted to know that I wasn't hiding from them. One time I was down in Franklin putting gas in the thing, and the guy said, some guy started really giving me a range. I can't believe you're using taxpayer money to buy gas to run around with. I said, sir, I pay for that gas myself. That's mine. Well, what about that car? Then first I said, that's my car. I pay for that. He said, I can't believe that. I said, yeah, that's mine. I do that so you know how to get a hold of me. So if you want to raise hell with me like you're doing right now, you can do it. I'm right here. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of, he, 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 didn't, he kind of calmed down. He said, well, okay. And he got back his car left. But my point is, is that uh, I always tried to be accessible. Every parade route, we walked, Volley and I walked the parade routes. Wow. We didn't ride in anything. We walked and handed out fire hats. And I always had people helping me do that. And uh, um, I just think that was the difference. I guess what it was. Yeah. So I haven't changed. You know? And I'm still that way. Even, even today, I get phone calls from people. And because I still know some people, I can make a few phone calls and help them out. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. I've had just a couple of them just recently. So. Yeah. I guess you kind of have to have a, just a really like open personality to, you to be able to just go up to people all the time as a, as a politician, like talk to them. And, uh, you do. I, I mean, you have to want to do it. I mean, yeah. politics can get really nasty and dirty. Yeah. And you have to want have a reason for wanting to do it. And mine was that I really enjoyed being able to help people. And the reward of seeing that, yeah. And it, I mean, it really started in real estate because I was a, you know, I was a mechanic and a teacher, and I got into real estate. And man, all of a sudden, I was making money. I mean, I saw a lot of real estate, and uh, I never got tired because it wasn't for the money. It was seeing the look on those people's face when, at the closing, yeah. and, I, and that that just always made me feel real good. Just like make that happen, right? Sure. And and that just boiled over but I think it goes back to my mom and dad always teaching me that you know you're not nobody's any better than you you're not any better than anybody else never give up you know I mean just always that's always been my attitude yeah. and I think that's that attributes. but yeah I, I, you have to do want to do that and this lady that replaced me is just like that Michelle she has town meetings she, oh she's doing something all the time she's just a, she's a great little gal yeah so. okay <laughs> I was getting paid eleven six when I went to the legislature, and I was making a lot more money in real estate than I had. And yeah. when you're in the legislature, you don't sell yeah. real estate. Right, right. So if it hadn't been for her, we'd have been in trouble. Yeah, yeah. she she kept selling, and uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, eleven six is what we paid. Now it's about twenty two or twenty three. In reality, with the per diem and everything, it's about forty five thousand dollars a year yeah. now. I think. Okay. So, but that's everything. It's pretty summer study committees. And yeah. All those stuff that ties in. They pay a per diem when you go to those. Right. Um, okay. So, what were you thinking when you walked into the state house for your first time as an elected official? I was really in awe. You know, I'd been there many times before with my brother and several the years, but all of a sudden I'm walking around this place and I'm going to be seated in here. Yeah. You know? And I walked in, I looked up at the ceiling, and I looked at that big thing, the big, uh, what do you call those things, uh, the picture on the wall, what, what do they call that volume when it's a full wall? A mural? A mural. Yeah, and I sat there and just looked at that, and I thought, wow. Yeah. And then the swearing in, boy, you know, I almost cried. You know, I thought, yeah. wow, man, this is, this is big time stuff. <laughs> this is not small potatoes. So, it, and then the second thing that I found interesting, was the first day of session, you just go ahead and run through a couple of rigorous things and then you hit a chair. And I'm walking around there, what do I do now? 
because <laughs> everybody was leaving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was just organization day. So sure. Was, and, uh, so, uh, but uh, it was a great experience for me, really was. Yeah. Okay. I never stopped learning. My 32 oh, years, bet. never stopped I bet. Learning. There's so many new things popping up. Yeah. Like and I think the success of a legislator, and I think this is real important, is that there's two political thinking, two parties. They just think different. That doesn't make them all bad people, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And I think that one of the things that made me feel best when I retired was a lot of Democrats come up and spoke for me. Mm-hmm. You know, when you had oh, sure. Did. And I think it's because I always treated them with respect. If I disagreed, I'd look and say, hey, man, I'm sorry I don't agree with you on that. And on the other hand, I always had I always tried to get a Democrat on my bill with me because we were in charge most the last 15 years we were in charge. But prior to that, the Democrats were, and you wouldn't get anything, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, and it wasn't because of the Democrats. It, the leadership just did it differently, you know. And uh, Brian Boswell was a great speaker because uh, uh, he opened it up. First, His first <laughs> he he appointed a Democrat as a committee chair. That had never happened. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so uh, uh, I, I think that's the key. And I, and I went over across the hall Talk to those people. You know, and a lot of times you call all those senators, a bunch of idiots, blah, blah, blah. Now you go over and talk to them and get to know them. And I think that's where my accomplishments came. It started right in the beginning. Senator Bob Garton didn't like me because of Dan Burton. Mm. He never, they were served together and he didn't like him. I don't know why, but he didn't. So I, I sent a request over to ask him if he would take a look at a bill for me and advise me on it. And he sent a real curt, nasty note back to me about, well, I was a freshman legislator. Here you are, sending something late. You act like you, you, it looks like you don't really know what you're doing. Well, I started down, I get ready to head out of the chambers, and I'm ready to let him know what I thought. And I get mad. I, and my county chairman was standing there. Hmm. I didn't know he was there. He said, what, what's the matter? Nothing. What's the matter? I said, well, here, read to see if you think I'm out of line. He read it. He says, Garton represented Johnson County. Mm-hmm. My county sheriff would say, he's living here with us. Yeah. He went over there. The next day I got a letter from Garton apologizing and how nice I was. You know. So I asked for me, I'm going to Bob, I says, I'm not Dan Burton. Uh-huh. This is your house. This is your rules. I'm going to play by your rules over here. Yeah. You just tell me what they are. I says, I'm not out to make any problems. And he and I became the best friends. And all the legislation he ever had, he always sent it to me. And, you know, when the speak, when the president says, says yeah, Bill, it's going to pass. Sure. So it made me look good, even though he, he, right. he wouldn't take credit for it. So my point is, is that working with people and showing respect for them, both sides of the aisle, both parties, both houses. Yeah. I think if, in that, it goes right back into my legislative career, trying to help people, trying to work with people. I, I had good reason behind stuff, or I wouldn't do it. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you started serving in 1988. Um, how did, was there any changes in the relationship between Democrats and Republicans over time? Oh, definitely. The, we had some, uh, the Democrats' theory at that time, and it was probably all over the country, so I'm not going to say it's a Democrat. Yeah. But it was rural. The Republicans don't get toilet paper. You know, I mean, we get nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we don't get to give Bill bills. Our bills never get heard. Blah, 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 blah. That's it. Mm-hmm. And that went on. And then Pat Bauer came in, and he was pretty tough to deal with. Matter of fact, I, I got him quarterback in the hallway one day, and he thought I was going to smack him. <laughs> and we became pretty good friends after that. I mean, because we had we sat down and had a long talk after that. Yeah. And it's just his personality and mine. And, you yeah. know, but I, I'm, 
I was really upset. He knew I was mad. And uh, uh, so then the first thing he did when he came out on the floor, he asked me to lead the lead the, the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> What's he doing? Then he, you know, and then he came up to me and he said, "What?" He says, "I like you. You're a good guy. Let's sit down and talk." But my point is, is that they were different in how yeah. they did it, and because it was so strict like that, when Bosma was the leader, Republican leader, the first year I was there was a fifty-fifty split. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That had never happened in the history, and we were there till the night before Thanksgiving, figuring out who was going. One day you'd have this chairman and say, and that created confusion. The committees were crazy. But I got an education, and so so then Bosma came in, and he and he, he and I be were pretty good friends. Valley went to went to church with him when they were kids, mm. and um, so I'm, we've known him for a long time. And it, uh, he says, you know, he says he says you got to be fair. And then he calls. He says I'm going to appoint a Democrat to a committee chair. And everybody goes, what? It's my reaching out an olive branch to let him know I want to work with him. That took guts. Yeah. But that never happened before. Yeah. And boy, you could just see a melting going out there. And we rarely had to yelling and screaming at the microphone like we'd had before from both sides. You know what I mean? And so I, I think that that's, that was probably the most significant change I've seen. Because all of a sudden, everybody is included. You may not get what you want, but you're going to get your chance to talk about it and at least present it. And maybe convince somebody to be a part of it with you. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's like I said if you ever talked to if you haven't ever talked to him talk to Vernon Smith he and I are good buddies but I'm telling you he's as liberal as they come and he calls me Mr. Hawk you okay. know so but we're good friends yeah. and uh, and I think that's just because of that very thing you know? yeah interesting um, so like comparing when your first session 1988 was you know 50-50 split versus your last session which was what 2020 2020 yeah so was a how did like the amount of political polarization compare between Democrats and Republicans, or was it about the same? Or there's always polarization, but it's usually on issues. Okay, um, it isn't because he's a Democrat, he's bad news. He's a Republican. He's, okay. you know, it's because we disagree on this issue, that, and that is the job of the minority party to pick apart and show what we're doing wrong as a majority party. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's their job. And yeah. it should be done because the public should see both sides of a story. Just because I came up with an idea sometime doesn't mean it's always right. Maybe there's some things that need to be changed to make it right. Yeah. The question is, are we going to be open-minded enough to listen? So, no, we still had those days. You know, I mean, they, they, their, their leader of their party would get up and give a big spiel and there are some of the people who were more liberal and less liberal than the Democrat Party that get up and give their opinions. And uh, that's, but that should be that way. I yeah. agree with that. I think that's, we sit there, but the difference is we sit there and listen and then we make decisions and vote. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think that was important, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, did you have many expectations about the legislative process and how that works before uh, you, you know, your first day? really dealing with legislation in the General Assembly? Or did you have a pretty good idea because of your brother's service? Or? Well, because most of my life, I was pretty well indicated that I wasn't a real smart individual, okay? Mm -hmm. and, I can't, I, and so I jokingly started calling myself the hillbilly down at the state house, okay? I mean, they know me, and I say, oh, I'm just an old hillbilly. And the reason I did that was because I couldn't sit down and read a bill like you might be able to. I could read it, but man, I'd have to go for it two or three times for it to sink in. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, as a matter of fact, just to give you an idea, I never read many books until about four or five months ago. And I got a, I don't have many now, but I got hearing aids that are Bluetooth. Okay. And I, wow. I got a library card, and I get books from the library, and I've listened to about 10 books in the last month. Wow. Because when I read, I, I have, you heard me there when Bob was reading, I kind of stumbled over a couple of words reading this here. I do that, I can't help it. Well, because I felt that way, I never felt intimidated by it. I just recognized that it was one of the obstacles I had to overcome. Yeah. So what I did is I spent most of my time watching people, listening. Uh, I'd voice my opinion. I was never bashful about that. Yeah. Uh, but I'd listen a lot. And then when, a, like, if a bill would come up that I have difficulty, I'd go get the lobbyist for it, the lobbyist against it, and we'd down the hall, and I'd get them to start talking about it. And I'd learn from the two of them <laughs> yeah. about that bill. Yeah, yeah. And so my process, I, I think that was my process to answer that question. I, I hope that that question is that I felt the best thing to do was to, God gave me two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I thought my best bet was to figure out a way to get them to talk and find out what they're saying. Even like when I'm, you know, I'm looking at you when I'm talking, mm -hmm. I always try to get as close to the front as I could in the legislature so I could watch the speakers mm -hmm. because I, I didn't want to tune them out. And I, I'm a pretty good listener, but, I'm not, I, but I still like to watch their lips, their emotions and... And uh, that's just how I did it. Yeah, so yeah that's, that's interesting. Okay. Um, See, so do you remember the first bill that you sponsored or authored? Wow. I really don't. <laughs> it's a long ago. <laughs> no worries. I think it's probably 50 50 when it comes to. You know what? I think I do remember what it was. Okay. There's a little town in Johnson County. It's, I forget the name of it now. And it had a railroad station that they were going to do away with, just a little railroad house. And anyway, so I carried a bill to have them recognize that as a, you know, as a, as a train station stop. And I think that was the first bill I carried. Some guy came up to me and said, I live over there, and he said, they're going to tear that train station. It was a little, little high, it wasn't nothing. But, but it was just the idea that they wanted recognition for that part of Johnson County, so I think that was the first bill I carried. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, how complex would you say was the process to getting a bill passed? I think, well, if you don't know what you're doing, it's extremely complex. Yeah. If you know what you're doing, it's extremely complex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the key to a bill is is that when you do it, uh, Michelle Davis, my, my, the one that replaced me, she came to me with a bill that's pretty controversial this year about sports, about men being mm -hmm. transgender into women's sports. Yeah. The governor vetoed it. And they're going to override that veto in May, but uh, but anyway, she came to me and I advised her to just start talking to the legislators, call them and talk to them, find out what they like and what they don't like about Democrats and Republicans. And I just always felt that that's how you learn, because if you think you're going to go down there and whip the world, you're crazy. There's 150 people down there. I always call them the prima donnas. That's senators and House Republicans and that. Or, or I mean, the Republican House and Democrats, House and Democrats, House and Senate. I'll get it right. And uh, but I always believed that, uh, uh, and I jokingly meant that. Okay, I didn't mean that like they really. But these people. To get to those positions, you used to have, used to, have to be pretty pretty strong. It's not easy yeah. to get elected, and they used to have some pretty strong opinions. And the only way you're ever going to get anything done with them is to work with them and convince them it's a good idea. Uh, Cheryl Clemens, the girl on the dyslexia bill, 
she couldn't understand why I wouldn't do it more the first year. And I says, in the legislature, it's a process. We are going to call it baby steps. You get a bill out there, and you modify it to meet the, the, the demands, but still keep focused on what your main issue is. It may not be what you exactly want when you're done, but it's a move in the right direction. Sure. Next year, we'll have another one and move it a little further. And so she always kids me about that baby steps. You know, and, uh, but, it, but it's true because... You know, just because I think something's a good idea, well, let's use an example. The, the, a couple of the bills that came up, the one about the transgender thing, in the Senate, there were some, some people that, that really had a problem with that thing, okay? Yeah. You know, and I'm not just, I'm talking about Republicans, not just Democrats. And so that's, that's normal. So you have to go over there. When I had my bill about dyslexia, it specifically mentioned in the bill Orton Gillingham as the training process. There's a training process that's called Orton Gillingham, and it's it works. It's the one that nationally is recognized as the best way to educate, work with kids with dyslexia. And uh, the chairman of the committee, Dennis Cruz, said, "I don't want that Orton Gillingham in there." I said, "Why?" He said, "Because you're you're using the legislature to promote a, a, a uh, an organization." I said, "No." That's what that. That's not an organization. That is the thing that talks about what type of training it is, like English, you know, or Gillian, or like whatever it is you're going to use. And um, so he said, "Well, I, I don't want that in there." So I got with the dyslexic people. And we changed the wording around. Yeah, and it passed. Well, my point is, the bill was not going to move, and he's Dennis Cruz, a good friend of mine. Okay, but he wasn't going to move it. And so, and here I have 300 people out here. You know, I mean, this is not like it's a small deal. And, uh, but I went and I listened to him. I went back to the people that had an interest in this and talked to him. And we made the modifications to the bill. And we still got it done. So that, but you got to deal with everything. I mean, yeah, process. Yeah, budget bill, man, you, you, we do a budget in the house. Just remember, yeah. that's that's a concept that's not going to be anything like that when it comes back from the Senate. And then when the two of them get together, it's going to be something totally different. That's good, because I think you need to, you know, that's how you come up with the best programs, I think. Uh, when you, you have one party that just strongly rams it through, and we're accused of that because the Republicans are the supermajority. Uh, we still we still fought between the House and the, and the Senate over those issues. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a lot of Republicans that go, ah, I don't do that, I don't want to do this. And, and uh, uh, so, it, it, but I think that's the best way to do it. And so, the answer, the answer, I hope that answers your question. You go in and you have to learn to work with people. You can't expect to just bully your way through and get what you want the first time. Uh, I mean, even the governors have tried that stuff, and it works once in a while, but not very often. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, what would you say were the differences between the House and Senate? I think the difference between the House and the Senate is the, the House is less formal. Okay. Um, the Senate. Uh, uh, it's just like in Washington. Uh, it seems like it's more structured, uh, disciplined, structured than the Senate. It's a smaller group in the House. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not uncommon for people to get them walk around in the House, and you know, anybody can go to the floor they want to talk with. And you can do the same thing in the Senate, but the difference is you go to the House, and if somebody speaks on the floor for a long time in the House, everybody about goes to sleep. In the Senate, they all do that. Yeah. They, they all talk about it. But it's but that's okay. It's their process. It works. But but yeah, I say that that's the the main difference. Yeah. Okay. They're both very well organized. I mean, they get things done. But I mean, right. it's just different ways of doing it. 
How influential would you say party leadership is to determining whether a bill gets passed or not? I think it's absolutely essential. Okay. Uh, I passed a, Senator Gardner and I became friends. And any bill he had, he sent it to me. Well, here's the president pro tem, and we were in a minority. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That bill got passed. Yeah. Because <laughs> if, if 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 the House Democrats want anything in the Senate, they better go along with the president. The pro. I mean, it's just you know politics. So they come over to me, and, and I remember one time Pat versus Wisegarden sent this up to you. I said, "We're just good friends. We represent the same district." Okay. Uh, well, we're going to hear it. <laughs> you know, I mean, but th but that's uh, uh, yes. In answer to your question, I think leadership. But on the other hand, if they don't do it right, they can get in a lot of trouble real fast. Yeah. Um, uh, the history shows us, I can't remember the guy's name now, there's a guy from Anderson up there that was the Speaker of the House, Jay Daly, Daly Roberts, or Daly Roberts, something like that. And he did some things wrong, and boy, they booted him out of Speaker, nothing flat. The next election, he was gone. And um, they also lost the House that year. So, but he lost his leadership position. Oh, okay. Yeah. But uh, Jay, no, I forget his name, but Dan was in the legislature when that happened. I remember when that happened. But I think the key thing is, is that a, a leader, and you see it, you, the question is coming for right now, Rod Bray in the Senate. I question some of the things that he's doing, and he and I are good friends, okay? I mean, he represents part of Johnson County. And, uh, but I also understand he's sitting there working with Democrats and Republicans, and all of them, regardless of party, have opinions about things. And he has to figure out a way into that tent to pull people together yeah. and get things done. And the Speaker has to do the same thing in the House. Yeah, I think it's maybe a little more difficult sometimes in the House because there's just more people, but maybe not. I don't know. I, I've never served in the Senate. So, but, uh, but I think that's the key. Yeah. I think it's just you have to work with people. You have to be willing to. So the answer to your question, is it easy? Never easy. Uh, it shouldn't be. I don't think it should be easy to pass a bill. Yeah. I think, you know, it ought to be raked over the coals three or four times just to make sure you're doing something right. Right, sure. Yeah, makes sense. Did you ever go against party leadership? One time by mistake. Okay. <laughs> Dave Wilkins and I are good friends, and something came up, and then we were looking for the ruling of the chair, and Wilkins and I voted against it. Wow, did we hear about that? Uh oh. But you know, what's interesting, uh, uh, at that time, uh, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, it was a speaker, not that terrible, before uh, Bosma, <laughs> the Republican speaker, not that terrible, I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, he, we went to his office to talk about it. He says, well, he says, I really resent what you did. And he says, the key thing is, don't do it again, let's move on. He was nice about it. I mean, okay. uh, there, there was, uh, he could have really... I mean, all kind of, they do all kinds of stuff. They can yank you off the committees or not kill your bills. I'm not saying they do that, but they have the capability to do yeah. that. So, you, yes, I, that was the only time we did it. We got heat about that every year in the caucus. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Jokingly after that, but I mean, yeah, yeah so, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But it, the reason I did because it was a mis I misunderstood what he was doing. I didn't think it was right, and I voted against it. You know, so. <laughs> um. How influential would you say lobbyists were in the ADA General Assembly? I think lobbyists, uh, when you talk about influence, I've, I think more of informational. Okay. I had a very close relationship with several lobbyists because 
If they were lying to me, boy, that was the end of the story. Sure. I mean, uh, you better tell me straight. Yeah. Because yeah. I'd ask them the other side of the bill. They'd tell me they're about their belly. I said, now what's the opposition going to say? And I expect them to tell me what they believe that the opposition is going to say. And uh, so I always looked at them more, not so much influence, but I guess they influenced my voting, but I looked for, more for information. Yeah. And like for, I worked with the bankers for years because I chaired the banking committee. And I had a relationship with them, and there's many times they want something, and I said no. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And they, but they understood, but they always had this opportunity to present their side of the story openly, and they gave me information that I might not have had. We had a period of time when foreclosures was out of control in the early 90s. Houses were sitting vacant all over the place, just getting destroyed, and the banks were sitting on us when the real estate industry collapsed. So I went to them and I said, is there any way we can get the leaders of these big banks together and sit down in the room and talk to me? Mm-hmm. Why do you want to do it? I says, because I want to get these foreclosures under control. And I want them to know I'm not trying to stick a knife in their back. So about three weeks later, I get a call from Amber Van Tell. She says, the bankers want to meet with you. And I said, okay. So we went over to her office. And I mean, all the big chase, all these big shots are, I mean, I was intimidated. You know? Yeah. But the point was, she got them together where I could sit, and they, you know, they don't talk much about their business among each other. You know, it's com- competitive. And I said, what I convinced them of, I think, was always, I'm not here to try to dictate or legislate anything. We've got a foreclosure problem. Everybody in this room does, and I want to know what can we do as a legislator to help fix it. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm going to listen with open mind. And I had two or three of those people call me afterwards. Wow. I mean, I found myself, for an example, I didn't understand one bank, they got, some, they got federal dollars to support them. One of them had to take over Countrywide, which had a 70% foreclosure rate. Oh my gosh. And so they had all that in their portfolio to deal with. And they, the problem was that I found out that they had, they had so many of them, they didn't have enough personnel to, to churn these things. So we worked on legislation. But my point was, is there's a case where a lobbyist was able to pull some real power together in one room. And I don't think that happened very often with those bankers. I mean, Chase, uh, all the big banks were there. Huh? Wells Fargo, they were all there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, uh, and to get, for a state legislator to get them in a room like that, and it wasn't because of Woody Burton so big, well, it's because the bankers did that for me, yeah. the bankers' lobby. Because they knew what I wanted to do, and they believed me. Mm-hmm. So Interesting. So how did you know if like a lobbyist was telling you the truth or not about something? It comes out pretty It comes up. <laughs> I had a case where uh, probably my fourth or fifth year where a lobbyist lied to, uh, lied to me. Okay. And so I called, I called my own private caucus of all the lobbyists concerned that bill. Mm-hmm. And I chewed, I didn't miss him personally, but I chewed him out up one side and down the other. I said, I'm going to tell you something. You, all you got to do is tell me straight. I may not vote the way you want. But you were telling me straight, and there's one here to lie to me, and that son of a bitch is never going to get anything from me again. <laughs> I said, I used that word because I wanted to make sure that they knew I wasn't yeah. kidding. Well, he came up and apologized to me. And later, about after about a year or so, I started, he, he changed his ways. But he kind of stayed away from me. He didn't come to me very often. Interesting. Well, but that, that only yeah. happened one time in yeah. my, my 32 years. But it was bad enough. The reason I found out he went and told the fellow Democrat what he was doing behind my back, and that guy was my friend. Mm. And he came and told me about it. So he wow. didn't know I'd find it out, and I did. <laughs> wow. So that, that, I'll tell you what, that integrity and honesty is absolutely essential from the legislators and the, and the lobbyists, because 
if they start lying to one another, they're not going to get anything done. Because mm-hmm. there's enough people out there that's going to bury them. I mean, it, yeah. you got 150 people down there, and I don't know, five or 600 lobbyists. So, you know, it's. Sure. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, do you think, like, campaign donations or, or gifts would influence politicians during their service at all? Or? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes, no. It never influenced me. I mean, you know. It, if they they want me to represent them, they give me money, okay. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we raise I, I raised money for my my own campaign because I gave those hats out and kept the fire truck running and did all that yeah. drove that van. And uh, uh, but I also contributed to the caucus because I knew that if we consolidated, we could get more people elected because we were competing quite frankly with unions and things like that on the Democrat side. Yeah. And so we had to raise larger sums of money. So I contributed to the caucus too, but. But uh, uh, I don't, you know, somebody would, if somebody gave me some money and then came back and says, I gave you money and, and I expect this. Yeah. Uh, yeah that would feel like yeah. a lead balloon with me real fast. <laughs> Only because I just don't think that's right. Sure. If they give me money, they're supporting me because they think I'm doing, they think I'm going to do, they think I'm going to be favorable to right. them. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the teachers union never gave me any money. Yeah. <laughs> and I was on the education committee. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, how influential would you say was gerrymandering during your service? I think that I think that that's an issue that's never going to be cured. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Democrats were in control, we were getting fifty four percent of the vote in legislative races yeah. overall, and they were getting fifty one, fifty two seats, and we were getting forty eight, forty nine. There were maps where this district here, this district, had a road connected them. And they were, I mean, it's just all kinds of goofy stuff. And Republicans have done that in states too, so it's not, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. and so when we got control, Bosman was really tough about that. He says, I want these things to be fair. Mm-hmm. We don't have to cheat to win. I mean, that's kind of what we kind of said, you know, we don't have to cheat to win. Yeah. Because we got the votes. And so we drew the, we squared up the district, but still, what happens? There's these organizations saying this that's not right, it's bad, blah, 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 blah. And when you're separating people by numbers, how do you know whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing? Okay, this is a Democrat district, so we'll make that a Democrat seat. This is a Republican. And that goes on, don't get me wrong. But I, I think that no matter what, you're going to continue to have some semblance of that kind of thing. And it's a state's right issue. Each state's going to be different. I think overall, we've been fairly fairly well organized, but we have a super majority in the House and the Senate. And you know what that looks like. It looks like we gerrymandered. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be changed again this next year. And who knows what they're going to come up with. But by the same token, I'd also measure the total number of votes that are cast for Republicans and Democrats in specific seats. When I say specifically, like House members, yeah. Senate members, governor, yeah, and look at those things because it gives you some kind of a feel of what's going on. Um, when we were the supermajority, I can't remember now who was somebody. Maybe it was Jimmy Carter. I don't remember now who it was. Maybe, maybe uh, no, maybe it was that. somebody had really screwed up bad, and a bunch of Democrats in Southern Indiana voted Republican. Mm. A bunch. And that's when we won the House won the house back. Because of these issues. I mean, those people, you know, I've always said this about voters. People think they're stupid. You mess with their kids, family, get in their pocket. You mess with their faith or their freedom, 
you're going they're not stupid. They're going to find out what's going on. They're going to vote. And I, I've seen that happen time. So when you're, you're when you have these things where you have just a huge vote turnout. Yeah. Something fired them up. Some issue. And, and uh, that tells me that the people... Why would you if I'm a, if I'm a factory worker and I'm making a good living and I got a nice car, a nice house? What do I care what the politicians are doing? Right. My gas goes to four dollars and fifty cents a gallon, and my, I can't get afford hamburger. No, I'm interested in what these politicians are doing. Sure. I mean, that's just human nature. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's what it is. Okay. So based on based on your experiences in General Assembly, um, what would you change about the legislative process? Boy, that's a hard one. Uh, I, I think the, 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 the thing that I've always felt like, compared to some other states and what I've seen, and, you know, I was a member of American Legislative Exchange, and we, I went to national conferences and stuff, is that I think we really have a fairly efficient process. Mm-hmm. We're in session from January to April the 30th in the budget session, and we have to get it done. And then we're in sessions of the 14th of March the next time. Yeah. And the, the, by creating that, that squeeze of time, it forces them to be efficient. And they don't always get everything right, that's for sure. But I think overall, when you look at the state of Indiana, we've got surpluses. I, I chaired the Committee on Retirement for, I don't know, 10 years, the Somerset Committee. we got we got surplus money in there. Illinois can't pay their retirement programs because they don't have any money in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a surplus in our budget. We're gonna, they're going to give money back to the voters. Not much, but a little bit because we've got a surplus. But that's management. That's you know, that's efficiency. And I think that's how you measure it. And I don't know what you. I mean, there's always things you can do to improve. Yeah. Always. Uh, but I, I was pretty comfortable with the system because it was difficult. It took a while to get to understand it, and then when you did understand it, it was still difficult. And I think it should be. I don't think it should be easy. I think you should have to. If you want something, you believe it or enough, don't quit. Just keep. Where they knock you down, get back up. Mm-hmm. Just keep pushing, keep working, and be willing to compromise. Though you're not going to get everything you want in this life. That's just yeah. That's just not going to happen. Sure. Uh, what would you say were the most controversial legislative issues when you served? The sexual orientation stuff. Um, Daylight, oh, that was, daylight saves, that was, a, that was huge. Okay. Garden and I were in the town meeting, and uh, it was a packed house. And that bill was in, out floating through the house at that time, or the Senate, I don't remember which house it was in. And so Garden and I would stand up together and answer questions, because we, I mean, we, we really had a pretty good relationship. And so there's a bunch of men over here, or the people that want to drive in movies. <laughs> or something like, and over here is people wanting to play golf, you know, and and, and uh, so they asked the question, well, "What do you, where do you stand on daylight savings time?" And Garton looked at me, and smiled, and he said, "Well, let's ask you folks, what's your opinion?" And we stood there for a half hour, and they were arguing back and forth. I mean, and Jerry Dor- Tor carried that bill, and when it finally passed, he st- he sat right behind me. He started crying. The pressure was so tense on moving that bill, it actually he actually started crying. Oh my gosh. And. Uh, uh, so that was it. But but I think for me the most controversial were the sexual orientation type stuff because I didn't believe in uh, gay adoptions. I didn't believe in the state paying for any type of support of any special interest group. Period, mm-hmm. and that included the gay community. And I think those were probably that's where I, I got the most heat when I did the thing with IU because they I got three death threats. Yeah. 
What dummy called me he was drunk? <laughs> called me about three in the morning. Yeah, back in those days, all you had was you could just call them back. You didn't have any way of recording who they were. So about three o'clock, this guy calls me and he's going to shoot me and blah, 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 blah. Oh my gosh. And he said that two or three times, then he hang out. Then he called me back. I said, now you call me again, and I'm going to turn you into the police. Yeah. So I pushed the read on the dial, be back, and he answered the phone. I said, see, I can find you. And the dummy is answering, no, then he hung up, and I called him back in, and his answering service told me who he was. So I called the police. The next day, the police came over, and I said, you're not going to worry about him anymore. But the point is, is that uh, one of them said, we're going to blow my car up. And, uh, my gosh. I mean, the, the there, there's the uh, you know the sad part about that stuff, Dan, is that it's the radicals. It's not the majority. I'm sure there's people out there that are gay that live there. I, I got in trouble one time. I probably shouldn't even tell this. I won't tell a real estate company that's working for. But I had a policy: if a person could sell real estate, I was going to hire them. Mm-hmm. And there was a policy in this company at that time. This is years ago, back in the seventies where they didn't want you to have over 10% women and, and they were especially interested in people that were just straight. Mm-hmm. I got called on the carpet because I hired two women. And I knew they were gay. I didn't care. You know, they, yeah. That's their business, what they do at home. And they're, she, they're still good friends of mine to this day, incidentally. And I got called on the carpet and went, well, you're hiring a lot of women. I says, okay. Uh-huh. I says, you sent me down to take over that office because it was losing money and I'm making money on it now. And... You either let me run it or you get somebody else. Yeah. And they backed off, and I had the top producing office that next year. And wow. that was South Side versus the North Side. That was a big deal. And uh, but but it wasn't just because it's because I I believe that you know people have a right. On the other hand, if they'd have been down there dressing like yo-yos and doing goofy stuff, I'd have kicked them out. I would have put mm-hmm. them in for a minute. Had nothing to do with their sexual orientation. Had to, to, and that's what bothers me the most. You know, all these issues, whether you're talking about Black Lives Matters or you're talking about gay rights or anything, I believe that if we're mistreating people, we should punish the people that's doing it. Mm-hmm. If a cop is hurting somebody and he gets caught, burn him. But you don't burn every cop. Mm-hmm. You know, one bad apple doesn't spoil. You know, it doesn't make them all right. bad. And and so I feel that way about this these issues here. You know, I look back in history and some of the horrible things. The KKK was was the, one of the head Indiana was one of the head states in the nation. Yeah, yeah. And the stuff they did to black people was horrible. Okay, let's educate our people in school the the truth, mm-hmm. not some bunch of stuff that we're all a bunch of white bigots or that kind of crap. Mm-hmm. That some of us, but we really believe that these people were mistreated. Mm-hmm. What do we do to change that? Long term. We create, do we do things to create incentives in them, help them get educated to where they can make a, pride themselves and make a good living and become successful? Yeah. Or do we just cut them loose and turn them on the streets and give them welfare? And when I say, I'm not against welfare, but I mean, right. I'm, I'm overreaching. Yeah. But it's the same way with the new that stuff. The gay people, they want to live that lifestyle. Go live it. But don't try to force it on other people. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, the, so I, I said that's probably the, you know, those issues will never go away. Yeah. Throughout history, there's been slavery. There's been that, this this sexual orientation stuff. Yeah, I mean, even if you're a Bible st- student, mm-hmm. you read that. This stuff's back back in the Old Testament. Right. You know, yeah. so this is nothing new. So, so I think that's yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, what would you say was the most complex legislative issue that you worked on? 
that I personally worked on or I voted on? Uh, I guess it could be either way. Because the, the most complicated thing we worked on was daylight savings time. It was okay. a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, but there was other issues that were important that came up in, in you know, I would be involved in it, but I, I didn't necessarily sure. carry it. I think the issue about uh, old gun rights, uh, okay. the, I mean, that's always been a big deal. Yeah. Uh, uh, issues about racial issues, issues about or sexual orientation, issues about marriage. Uh, for 10 years, I chaired the Summer Study Committee on Retirement for All State Employees. And during that time, uh, you know, there was times when we kind of pinched the, the pocketbook a little, but we always had the money to pay, and we've got a surplus in there for about, a, about yeah. uh, I think it's half a billion dollars or something like that. But, uh, but, but that was always a big issue because I'd had times when the police and the firemen would come down there, and, you know, I always believe those guys are out on the line. They're picking up stuff you and I don't want to look at. Mm -hmm. And I know there's bad cops and there's bad, but the most of the majority of them are good people. Mm -hmm. And so I worked very hard, and I, they supported me. They, as a they kind of, they contributed to my campaign. Their union said that's a, but uh, but it's because I. It wasn't because I I just liked it. It's because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. So that was always a big issue. The teachers' retirement plan was huge, yeah. huge. And, um, I mean, you know, when you start talking about that, you're, you're talking big bucks. Sure, yeah. And you got two sides to that. You want to be fair, but you also have a union over there. Their job is to try to get as much as they can. That's, that's what the job is. And so I'd say that, that was the education yeah. on the budget was uh, retirement was a big issue. Okay. Uh, let's see. Thinking about some uh, of the legislation that I saw, like, come up in, like, newspapers when I was going... Uh, through those, I saw that you like. I guess had some work on bullying prevention. Yes. So what, what was that we, about? We had. I was on the education committee, and I was joked about this because Bosma said, "I'm gonna put you on the education committee." I just said, "Because I'm a hillbilly, you don't like me." And he just smiled and said, "Yes." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there, I really believe he put me on there because I because I'm not a well-educated man, and I really supported education. At all levels, mm -hmm. junior colleges and Ivy Techs and Central Medicine. But uh, your question was uh, repeated to me the, about the bullying prevention legislation. We had, in the education committee. We had we had a bunch of kids come in and testify. And if you heard some of that stuff, you would understand about yeah. you know what's going on. It really happens. And with the technology today, it's even worse. Sure. Because they get you in the classroom or in the hallway and say something, and then it's on the internet and it's all over the place. And suicide goes yep. up because of that kind of stuff. Yep. And so uh, I championed, I was a co-sponsor of legislation to go after and educate the schools to stop doing it and also give them the opportunity to pursue this this uh, internet stuff off campus, not just... Before, they were just saying, well, it didn't happen in the school, so I can't do anything about it. Well, if they go out in the parking lot and beat the hell out of somebody, <laughs> that's not the school, I guess. Huh? Well, so we gave them the authority to go outside of that and have wider search range for bullying and to pursue it. And particularly, in the uh, the biggest part was probably the Internet in, in pursuing those kind of things because it's the way it is today. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Um, let's see, you also looked like you did some stuff on property taxes. Oh, I'm... 
I'm a realtor. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what was uh, uh, yeah what was that about? I wanted to do away with property taxes, and I fought for years to do just eliminate it and go to an income tax or something like that, mm -hmm. and uh, never could get it done. But I was on the bill on the property taxes when we changed it and reduced it greatly, and dropped it down to the one percent cap. We had cases, for an example, in Johnson County where Franklin built a high school down here that looks like you know a castle. Yeah. And it costs a lot of money. <laughs> and the first thing they started doing was raising taxes yeah. on everybody because they had to pay for it. And so by putting a cap of 1% of the value of the property, we did, we did put a hole in there that said that if the voters want to vote on raising that, they can. But yeah. a government entity can't do it. Sure. And so that, that was a huge deal. It really was because we greatly reduced property taxes. And I think you see the difference. Uh, I, that was a biggie in my mind because you look at the business that comes to Indiana. Drive down the road, look at the warehouses. My gosh, Amazon Prime's got four or five warehouses, million, half million square foot buildings up and down the Interstate 65 here yeah. in Johnson County. And uh, that's just one county. And the reason they're doing it is because it's a better in business environment and property taxes was a big issue. It was a huge issue. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I always felt like that was a bad tax. And the other thing I didn't like about it is if I buy a house and I pay for it for 30 years and I retire, why should I be taxed after I retire for something that I've spent 30 years paying for? Yeah. I always felt like senior citizens that retired should not have to pay. We didn't get that done. But here again, we, we made change, but we didn't get everything we wanted. But I, thought, I really felt like senior citizens that retire should not have to pay property taxes. Yeah. But they do. So. Now, I think I read something about you like uh, creating like the largest tax cut in state history or something, or or we evolved or that's that was it. The largest tax cut in the state's history was we cut the property taxes, and I was um, on that committee. Yeah, and I was one of the co-sponsors of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That was it. All right. Um, also, let's see. You did some work on like like uh, legislation for foster care children. Uh, if you if you looked through, if I took you through these books and showed you everything, you'd see that I told you the story about when I went into the Guardian's home that night. Yeah. And I always thought the Guardian's home was a good thing because it was a it was a peaceful surrounding in a rural a, a, a urban neighborhood, a nice neighborhood over in Irvington. And I got I still got pictures of this stuff. I got them from that up there on 30th Street at the museum when my wife was working up there. Not the oh, museum okay. or the history thing. Yeah. But anyway, it was an environment where a kid could feel safe when something was going wrong. And foster parenting is a good thing, but it also can be abused because you get paid to take care of kids. And some people abuse that. Yeah. And my feeling was I still felt that we should have the, the option of having places like the Guardian's Home, where there's a place where they can go and feel comfortable, play games. It's like a school. I mean, it's, you know, they got a big gym, but the, it, was, it, it wasn't real big, but it was, it was, it was a home feeling. Yeah. And that's where I was. I even played Santa Claus there a few years later. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just, those kids come running into their eyes, great big, you know, and they get a little present. But, but the point was, they felt like they had a companionship and, and uh, an environment to, to work socially among themselves. And so I, I fought real hard for that because there were abuses going on in the foster care system. There were kids being untreated. They were being, I mean, not, and I'm going to qualify that. 
because it happens doesn't mean that all foster parents are doing that. Yeah. But it meant quite a few of them were. And it wasn't being managed very well at all. As a matter of fact, after I got involved with the gal that was the director that quit, they hired this gal that used to work at uh, Riley Hospital. And uh, um, because I, went, I, I even had the chief justice, you know, she's got an adopted child. I had her in a meeting with, with this gal. <laughs> And about three days after that meeting, that gal quit. Because I, I was really fired about certain counties that was not doing the job. Yeah. They were just dumping these kids in homes and they were being treated like dirt. That's not what you do in a foster home. That, I mean, those kids are already, they've already got a huge problem. Their mom and dad did something wrong or their dad or something. They, they, and I, and I've, I've always felt that way because my mom, I can remember, we lived in my grandma's house, I told you. What she made for tips downtown, the tea room, that was it. Mm -hmm. Dan used to shine shoes just to buy heating oil yeah. for the house. And, uh, I mean, because that's all we had. Yeah. You know, and, and I always felt like the, the one thing, even when I was in that police car that night, is I had family. Mm -hmm. and, and I was fortunate to have my brother and sister right there with me, sitting yeah. in the car with me. What about this poor kid that gets taken out of a house at seven or eight years old? Their mom just got shot or something, or they, they're, they're not. They went wild on drugs. Yep. That kid deserves to be in some kind of a comfort zone and people that are understanding enough to to really help them. And this stuff, they set up centers and stuff. They were setting up centers that were ineffective. They were doing a lot of things that just wasn't effective. They just yeah. And they were blaming it on, uh, they, the gal that was running was blaming it on other people and all that stuff. And, and uh, but that's a huge thing. I mean, there's thousands, thousands of, uh, of uh, uh, people that do that, foster care. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I got involved with it because I wanted to clean it up. And I will say this, the governor got involved with that, and he helped with it. They, they, they hired that new gal right after that happened. And she's pretty sharp. Uh, I can't remember her name now but because it's been several years ago, but, but she does a pretty good job. And I met with her two or three times about it. Because again, that was my involvement. My background teaches me that everybody, I don't care who it is, deserves a chance. Mm -hmm. If the person's mentally ill, if the person has a drug problem, if the person's fat, skinny, ugly, poor, rich, they all deserve a chance. And you can't give a person a chance by taking things away from them. You gotta be able to give them something. Yeah. And in a foster care situation, they got to be given the opportunity to feel comfortable. Sure. I'll give you an example. A girl that worked for me at the state house, she was doing foster, she, that's part of the reason I got involved in this. She was doing foster parenting and there were these two kids. One of them was a real problem kid. He, he, needed, he needed medical help, you know, mental medical help. The other was a little girl. And they started to go through the process of adopting this little girl. And they brought her, they went out and bought a new bedroom suit for her and all this stuff. And she came into the house, and the first thing she walked in, they had, they had a, row, a library like in the office with books, to, and she was looking for books. And uh, Elizabeth said, well, you can take a look at them. I can, I can take one out. Hmm. She took her upstairs, and she started, and she said, I've never had my own bedroom before. And then they took that child away. Because they decided they want to put the daughter, the the the, the son and the, or the boy and the girl back together again, maybe it's right. But my point was, I watched that and watched the ring of that little girl because they were really working. Yeah, yeah. They made her start feeling, oh, I'm, 
I can look at the books. So she's sitting there just read those, look at the books and go through them. She was about 10, you know, something like that. But when you see those, another time I went down when I was running for office, and this was in uh, Princess Lakes, I knocked on a door. And these people were saying, would you come in? I said, yeah. They had this little toddler. And they says, can you do anything to stop the welfare department from sending this kid back to their parents? I said, what's wrong? She says, I'm afraid they're going to kill her. Wow. And I said, I'm not elected, but I said, I'll be glad to talk to him. And I called down. They said, the law says they got to go. Well, three weeks later, that baby was killed by the father. Oh, my God. I've never forgot that. That kid in foster care. Those kind of things were going on. Yeah. And the other thing was politics. There were some people, like, if you have a region in foster care, okay, like the gal lived in Shelby County, that was over Johnson County and some other kind, and she was a real, she was bad news. I mean, I, she and I really got tangled up in that. She she came and said like this, in the meeting we had. I said, are you going to speak? No. I said, I, I just want to talk and learn about it. It's really none of your business. I said, I'm a state legislator. I think it is my business. Yeah. Well, that's when I went to the chief justice and said, we got to do something. But, but my point was is that she was bad news, and it influenced all yeah. of the, the system. Wow. I don't know if she had anything to do with that little kid getting killed or not. I don't know. But the point was there needs to be a system in place to protect the kids. So that's where it comes from. So yes, that's why I got into it. Interesting. Okay. Um, also saw there was some uh, debates going on at the time when you served about uh, like the state raising money from gambling and stuff. I never supported the gambling, and the only reason I never supported it, I mean, I've been to Vegas yeah. a couple of times, two times, yeah. three times. I went there for a race a couple of times, so I'm an auto race fan. But uh, uh, I always felt like if you bring gambling into Indiana, because it was starting to happen in other states, mm -hmm. What's going to happen is we're going to start out real small and they're going to figure out how to get revenue for the state out of it and then it's going to just start growing like crazy. And I think gambling is an addiction just like drugs to some people. And so I voted against it. Not because, I, if a person was an adult wants to go gamble somewhere, it's legal. But what happens? We put these casinos up and then over in Illinois they start putting them up. Blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know they're spraying up everywhere and now we got it online and yeah. gamble to your heart's desire. And I just never felt that was right. I felt there ought to be some kind of control over that that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So I didn't support it. Yeah. But it passed, you know. And so, what are you going to do? It passed. So, yeah. Uh, you win some, lose some. But I just didn't, I didn't support it. Yeah. Now tell me about the, the license plates. Uh, we were in the legislature, and there was one Jewish fellow. In the legislature, every legislator has the right to request that their minister be the minister of the day. Yeah, okay. Okay. And basically, most of them are Christian, just because most of the legislators are Christian. Yep. It has nothing to do with, I don't like this religion. I mean, we had Muslims. We had Sikhs in there, you know, the, the Sikh yep. people. I mean, well, they come in. We honor them and, and move on. Well, that's what Jewish fellows said. There was too many Christian people getting up there and praying and stuff. So he went to this Indianapolis court mm -hmm. and got a judge to rule that we could not use any prayer that mentioned Christian, Christ, or Christianity in our prayer. Mm. Now, first of all, that's unconstitutional. Mm. But because the court ruled it legally, we had to eat, even though we don't come into the jurisdiction, we had to go to the next higher court, which is in Chicago. We eventually beat it. Well, when that happened, I went to Brian's, the speaker, and I said, look, 
I'm going to pray before we start session. I don't care if you like it or not. He said, well, I'll be right there with you. I said, I said, what do you think we should do? He said, well, let's just go to the back of the chamber before we go in. It was whoever wants to pray can. And he said, different person lead the prayer. So we had to crack every day. We'd all gather back there because we weren't going to stop praying because that's our God-given right and constitutional right. And uh, so I got to thinking, I, somewhere I saw in God we trust on something. I don't know what I was looking at. I wonder how the people feel about getting a plate that says that. Yeah. So I went to the speaker and he said, I think it's a good idea. So I introduced it. Bob Garton didn't like it, my buddy. Okay. Okay. And uh, he said, I'm not going to do any kind of special interest plates. I says, Bob, there'd be no charge. Just you either get this plate or this plate. No, we're not going to do it. So he killed it. He killed it. Wouldn't let it go through the Senate. That summer, he had a little town called Hope, Indiana, and the BMB shut down that license branch and made him mad. Mm. He came to me at the fair. He said, he said, I can't believe they did that. He says, you, you know that license plate by the guy with dress? I said, yeah. He says, you send it to me next year, and I don't want them to get one penny. I don't want BMB to get one penny. I said, hey. And so the next year, that's how we did it. And then the Jewish people fought me on it. And it was kind of funny because Jim Shallow was the news and we were down in the basement, you know, getting ready to go, and she was fighting, and so he got us together. He's, oh, wow. He was a pretty sharp guy, Jim Shallow was. And, uh, and uh, so we were going back for it. She said, well, we just don't want any special interest plates. And I looked at her, I forget her name, now. she's still their liaison person. I said, do you believe in God? Well, absolutely. I said, so do I. Hmm. I said, this isn't about Christians, Jews, Catholics. This is about the national model in God we trust. And she got a funny look on her face, and of course, shallow. She was the camera went right off. She said, "Well, I think we'll take a position of remaining neutral on it." And they backed off, and that's how I got it out of committee because they were fighting it. Yeah, and uh, I mean that, that's a true story. But wow. uh, but when she realized, I think she thought I was trying to make a Christian plate. Yeah. Okay. And I wasn't because it, this all started over. The, we couldn't have a Christian prayer in the legislature. And I convinced her that that, that was not my intention. Mm -hmm. And you know what? The next year, they proposed making 50000 those plates, and they ran out in two weeks. Wow. Two, uh, uh, out of the plates, there's $2 million, I think, is it $2 million? Over $2 million of the license plates in Indiana are in God we trust. There are more of those than any other license plate. Now I'm fighting with them to try to get them to put it back up on the side where it used to be. I like I got a as a matter of fact, yeah, I've got a thing in there where the guy made it for me that ran the prisons, was in charge of the prisons. He and I were good. He took he took me to his prisons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was he was the director over all of it. Yeah. And they had like I mean he was a good guy. He that, he only stayed about two years because somebody else snatched him up. He was really good. But he had a place where they had a praying room and every type, Muslim, Christian, all they're all praying. They had different times they could go in and do their, their prayer or whatever they want to do. And uh, so he made a plaque for me and sitting there in my office with a guy who dresses as Woody. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but that's how that came about. And, and uh, that's probably one of the things I'm, that and dyslexia are two of the most th things I'm most proud of. One, because the people had a right to speak out on that license plate. Yeah. And two, because I was able, anytime I could help kids, whether it be, well, whether it be the welfare case or the foster parenting or whether it be the uh, dyslexia, because Everybody deserves a chance, and I and I think you know I really believe my mom instilled that in me because I'm telling you, 
we were considered, uh, that's a, it's not politically correct, but they called us white trash. Mm -hmm. That's what we were called in Blackwood. My family, because, you know, my dad was a criminal, and he did all these crazy things, and, and my stepdad was, was a hillbilly, he didn't know any better, he was an old family worker, and mom was a waitress. And, I mean, you know, that's just, yeah. but you just grew up with that, you know, maybe, you, you you know, they used to call me FWTT, Fat Woody the Tank. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it was heavy. <laughs> I didn't care. I called. I had news for them too, so don't worry. I mean, yeah. And uh, but but my point is, is that I, I you're, you'll find that probably a heavy load of my career was in human interest things, trying to help people. Yeah. I just always felt like uh, because I went through it, and if there hadn't been people, one time we didn't have anything to eat. Dan never told you this story. And Salvation Army brought us something to eat. Mm. You don't forget. And I was five years old. You know, you don't forget stuff like that. Uh, people helping people. So every year I contribute to the Salvation Army every year. Yeah. yeah I mean, I don't miss a lick of that because I think it's important. They're helping people. And uh, uh, Mom always taught us, you know, don't, if they knock you down, you get back up. Mm. If somebody wants to fight, you run them and call you coward. They get you in the corner. There ain't any of that no fair stuff. You do what you do to win. Kick, pinch, bite, whatever you have to do. I mean, because she had to be, I mean, she was that way with my dad. She had to put up with it because he was six foot eight, my natural, you know, my real dad. And uh, she had still that. And my dad, my stepdad, he never backed down from anything either. And he always, I don't, mom decided she wanted to knock the wall out between the living room and the dining room and make it a big room. We had a 1,200 square, no, we had a 700 square foot house. One day, Kenny comes over with a sledgehammer and starts knocking them off. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, just the way, I mean, he'd do stuff like that and, and it worked, you know. Yeah. And so he raised me, so I guess that's probably, but, uh, but if, you know, if uh, my first wife got hepatitis and yelled at John, she worked at Cleaners. Okay. And she and I were quarantined. I was not allowed to go to work, I couldn't get paid. Yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do about the bills. You know, I, sure. I mean, you really. Were. And my dad, Kenny, comes and knocks on the door. I says, "You can't come in." He says, "Bullshit!" He shut me all the way. Come in. <laughs> That's how my dad, stepdad was. He's only about that tall, but mm -hmm. uh, but he came in. and He sat down. He says, "What's going on?" I said, "Man, we're just struggling. I mean, you know, I don't have anybody paying He says, "Don't worry about your bills. They're done. I'm going to take care of them." Just, I mean, that's how Kenny, he didn't just do that for me, he'd do that, he had a, he had a black guy that worked for him down at the foundry, and uh, he got, he, he needed some financial help, and, and he didn't leave, he talked about, it. he called him the name, the N-word and all that stuff, mm -hmm. he gave him money, wow. yeah, and gave him jobs to work for us, he worked for us, you know, when I moved my house, that guy came out and helped, he did a lot of the work, the concrete work, and digging the hole for the septic tank and all that, uh, but that's that's how they, my family was. So I just grew up. That's how you do things. You treat people nice. The guy when I lived in Mars Hill, the guy next door, the, the kid was, you know, not right. And mm -hmm. He ended up he ended up in a facility for that eventually. But I understood it. You know, I was nice to the guy. You know, he was he, he was probably five years younger than me. But I was nice to him because you know, he can't help it because. Well, he is. That's what it is. But you just grew up around that kind of stuff. So I, I really believe living in a poor environment and moving myself up. And I'm not rich. I'm comfortable, but I'm not rich. But I believe in doing that. I believe that I've had the, the blessing of seeing 
life. I mean, yeah, sure, definitely. I have a big perspective, not just, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I mean, it didn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, focus on some kind of big picture uh, reflective questions on your service. Uh, so why did you eventually decide to leave the Indiana General Assembly? Why did I leave the legislature? Yep. I thought 32 years was enough. Yeah. Um, I felt that I'd done it. I, 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 I felt I was going to leave it 30 years, and Bosma talked me out of it. He pumped my ego. He called me into his office and he says, What's this about? You're retiring? I said, Yeah, this is it. He says, Now you're not leaving. What do you mean I'm not leaving? I got six or seven people in here I really trust. You're one of them. You're not leaving. Well, my ego went through the ceiling. You know, speaker said that to me. You know. yeah. So I signed on for two more years. Well, I didn't know he was planning on retiring <laughs> two years also. I didn't know that. So we both retired at the same time. But what makes me feel good is I walked out of there without a bunch of black marks against me. Yeah. People still like me. They still come up to me. I mean, you know, yesterday we were at a grocery store. Oh, you're Woody Parker. You know, I voted for you. That makes me feel... It isn't because my ego needs pump. It's because those people must have thought I did a good job. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but 32 years is enough. And, and it's kind of interesting because when I announced that I wasn't going to run again, I had five candidates call me that want to talk to me. I think it's kind of program. I said, sure. So I got the county chairman with me because I wanted her to sit in on it. And they came and I interviewed every one of them. And uh, I got down to two people and I thought, and uh, the, the county chairman and I agreed with those two, which I think she kind of favored the other person more, but it turned out we made the right decision because this gal is good. She, what impressed me is when she first came to talk to me about it, she took out a notepad and started taking notes. And my feeling about that is she's listening and trying to learn. She doesn't have all the answers. A lot of these politicians come in and give you a spiel about, ah, oh, blah, 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 I'm going to change the world. So, yeah. so I, but, but I, 32 years was enough. I spent four years in the, as a county councilman and, and 32 years as a legislator. And I felt like I'm walking out on a high note, and that really made me feel good. And on my day when I retired, you know, they have, they have this big thing where the legislature comes up and everybody speaks about it. A lot of Democrats come up and spoke highly of me, and that, that did more for me than anything because I thought, at least they felt like I was fair to them. So I, I think that's what it's all. But 32 years was enough, and I, I don't regret it. I never regret it for one minute. People say, I, as a matter of fact, uh, Suzanne Crouch is going to run for governor, and I'm running her campaign down here in Johnson County. Oh, wow. Yeah, I served with her about eight years in the legislature. She's, she's a class act, so mm -hmm. I'm going to try to help her. But... Uh, yeah, but I enjoy that because I don't have to do it. I'm doing it because I want to. Right, right. And legislature, you know, the, some of the things you don't realize about, people say legislature, you know, it's a, it's a PUD job with a lot of money. It's not. I never could take a vacation in the winter because we were in session. Mm -hmm. One time, my wife and I were all set to go to Israel mm, okay. with our church. And a special session was called. Oh, no. So my wife went, and I didn't go. Oh, my gosh. And you, you give up those things because you want to do the right thing, but it's yeah. a commitment. And you, oh, yeah. you do it or you don't. Yeah. And I, you know, ah, you don't have to be there. You just go, I said, no, 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 we're calling a special session. I'm going to be there. You know, I'm going to see what's going on. And, uh, uh, but people don't realize that. This year is the first year I've taken two trips this year. I went to Florida to visit a friend of mine for about a week, and then I, we just came back from Denver last week. Oh, okay. Uh, to visit my brother, uh, brother-in-law. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but I couldn't do that then, and I, I enjoy that. You know what I mean? Uh, 
my wife and I, we'd say, I want to go somewhere. You just get in the car and go. And the, we, we were on the verge of bankruptcy when we got married because the economy was bad. And even the, the lender where I had my house, it was called First Federal. I went to them, I said, I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the payments. And they just said, Woody, don't get over three months late because we have to foreclose if it gets three months. Mm. I mean, they, and they didn't even rate me bad. I, mean, I had to buy a car about a year later, and my credit was top rate. Wow. And uh, but the point was is that once we turned it around, I told her I says that's never going to happen to me again. And that's when I built some retirement homes. I built uh, let's see, six, three. I built six buildings. Two, they're nice ones. They're you can buy one side or the other. They're top quality stuff. And I've maintained them, take care of them all those years. Now they're ours, and that's our retirement. So, plus what I saved in the legislature, I, 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 we had a thing where we could put money in and contribute, and I always did that. But, uh, but I'm not rich, but I don't have to worry. And that's that's where I wanted to be when I retired. I didn't want to, yeah. to worry about what's going to happen next. So, uh, yeah. So, 32 years was more than enough. Uh, uh, some people say term limits. I I don't believe in term limits from the standpoint. There's things that you deal with you can't learn in two or four years. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with a $35 billion budget, like the retirement or the state budget, and you're not talking about somebody laying $35 billion on the table. Mm -hmm. There's debits, credits, late payments, early payments. There's all, there's all kinds of things in the agenda of balancing the books. Mm -hmm. You can't learn that in a year or two. When, yeah. when, I, when the speaker asked me to take over the retirement committee, because I'd been sitting on it anyway, I said, man, I'm not qualified. He says, then get qualified. <laughs> That's how Bob's always treated me. But I had a real learning process because, I mean, you get $35 billion. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, you better make sure. You, and it, it's not all laying there because this, these people are paying this much money in. Well, 15 years now, they're going to retire and they're going to get this much money. You better make sure there's enough to pay them. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, you can't learn that overnight. Education. You can't go in there and change the education system. You got to learn about it. Uh, Bosma put me on that committee because he knew that I was a real strong believer. I, I believe I support uh, colleges, you know, IUP, you know, major college, but I also support short-term training type education, Ivy Tech, uh, Central Nine, private schools, because in this day and age. And I think that's why he put me on there. What I saw, I told him this. I said, you know, 30 years ago, you go to a hospital and the nurse had to do everything from a bedpan to heart surgery. Today, you got a specialist doing this, this, this. And each one of those nurses got different equipment to deal with. Them. They need to be trained in that equipment, period. They need to know that like the back of their hand. And, and he agreed with me and so did the, uh, uh, Ivy Tech. And uh, we got a lot of resistance to the uh, I and Purdue fought us on that. Mm -hmm. but again, Garden got involved. We passed it. <laughs> so we made it happen. So, Let's see. So how long do you think it takes for someone to like feel comfortable in the General Assembly? Like, like they understand the environment and, and how, to, how it all works? Well, I think it takes at least four years of okay. experience that to, just to get the handle on you learn You learn a bunch the first year. Don't get me wrong. They, we, they even have orientation classes for mm -hmm. freshmen. Let's say. But... To get in her field, it's about four years just to kind of get your feet wet. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, what lessons would you say you learned from your experiences? I think I learned the biggest thing I learned is that mom taught me right. 
Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do it. I wanted mm-hmm. to go to the legislature, and I did. I lost, and then I came back and won. And uh, Dan did the same thing mm-hmm. So uh, in, the, in the Congress. He lost, and he came back and won. And uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the greatest thing of all is I've, I've, in my lifetime, if I die tomorrow, I go away with the feeling that I think I did some good for some people, and that's, I don't need any praise for it. I don't need anything. I just, that just That's good for me. It makes me feel good. That I've helped people, the guy with the wheelchair. Yeah, that's yeah. a big deal to me. Yeah, I mean, see that guy sitting down in that wheelchair with a smile on his face. They took him out of that bed, and put him in that wheelchair because they didn't have a wheelchair big enough for me. They had a big wide job. And, uh, yeah, sure. So, and that little dyslexia girl, man, that broke my heart. Yeah, no, she's I, still my buddy. <laughs> I understand. I totally get that. Um, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? The advice I gave to Michelle is that anytime you get a piece of legislation in your mind you want to do, talk to some of your, your, your other people and talk to some of your constituents. Get a feel for what the feeling is for it. Because sometimes you might get an idea, and it might mm-hmm. not be a good idea. It might be a great idea, but you, you just get a lay of land. So I always felt like that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that don't be afraid to ask for advice, and don't be afraid to talk to lobbyists and ask their opinion on stuff. You know, the, the rumor out there is, oh, there are a bunch of crooks and they're buying you. That's, that's just not true. But, uh, but I think that, the, you know, that you can learn from them. Yeah. And uh, the first bill I ever passed, I just remembered what it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm going to digress for just a second. Sure. A lady had an ambulance business down here. As a matter of fact, her son is the mayor of Greenwood right now. And there was some legislation about ambulance services. And a Democrat named Fred Garber, lobbyist, came to me and asked me to carry a bill to do something. I can't remember now what yeah. it was for that. And he he showed me how to do the bill. He taught me. I mean, he, he came and said, you need to do this, you need to do this. And he, and he, he was a Democrat. I remember he worked, at, he worked on uh, President Johnson's campaign. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. He, but, but anyway, so, but that bill, uh, but the learning process, and I learned that from, he taught me a lot about how to communicate with lobbyists and legislators, because that's what he did. Yeah. He was good at So I, I'd say that uh, you, you need to take a couple of years and ask people. Remember, you got two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I know I talk a lot, but I do listen. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, think, I think that's the answer. Because she calls me every once in a while. Michelle does. And uh, when, you know, when this thing came up about this bill, she said, I'm getting a little resistance for it. I said, start calling the legislators and talk to them about it. Just get the list out and start calling yeah. them. Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> she got 78 votes out of that thing when it came out. Wow. Yeah, so uh, that's not bad. But, but anyway, uh, so I, I, I don't know if that answers your question. No, yeah, it does. Okay. Um, what, in your opinion, would you say is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Most important work? Yeah. Oh, I think the, I think the budget process is the most because it controls everything. Yeah. Education, highways, yep. everything, yeah. So I think definitely the budget and making sure it's sound and solid all yeah. the time. Uh, what would you say the public doesn't know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? I think that most people don't have a clue what's going on <laughs> yeah. down there, okay? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Bosma did that I thought was really good is we started put, we put cameras in every single committee room mm-hmm. on the House floor, and any time a committee's in session, that's on, and you can pull it up on the internet. That is to try to inform people what we're doing. Yeah. 
I find that most people don't have any idea what's going on unless something happens that affects them. Yeah. Then they're very involved. Just like the dyslexic, I had a ton of people down there because they had dyslexic kids. Yep. You know, and um, so uh, I think that's got a lot to do with it. So. Sure. Okay. Um, let's see. Last few questions here. How has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? Oh, I think it's had some drastic changes. I think we were a one-horse flyover city. And I think, I think that this starts way back in the days of uh, uh, Luger when he yeah. came up with Unigov. Uh, we are now a first-class city that draws a lot of big stuff, big stuff. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the, the, that part of the thing, we, we, we've done well and we're growing. So I think the state of India has a good achievement. I think it's part of it's because the legislature, I think, overall has been wise in most of the decisions to make sure that we're fair, yep. we're economical, we're a good business environment. And when you bring those people, they bring jobs. You know, Salesforce One, big operation. They were in California, and they didn't like us because of some Bill Pence had about sexual orientation. I don't even remember what it was. But they came out, and so did the NCAA and all a bunch of people. And Salesforce once said, we'll never come to Indiana if you, know, if you do this. Well, they brought their whole operation here because it was cheaper and more economical than it was in California. Mm. Yeah. I use that as an example because I mean, they, they bought the tower down there by the state. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, right? uh, Salesforce. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, but uh, I believe that that's sound business practices. I think people come to you. And the other thing is it's a friendly environment. You know, we're not, you go to some states and you go into big cities and you look, you feel like you, you, know, you need a bodyguard. Yeah. And I, even in Indianapolis with the crime the way it is, I think you feel good when you go downtown. Uh, when you come down to Johnson County, you feel welcome. You know, I don't care who it is. You know, we try to welcome people, make it friendly. And I think that's just the nature of Indiana. I think we're just friendly people. Hoosiers. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, how has the General Assembly changed? I think it's changed drastically because I think, first of all, I think that we went to a policy of openness to the public with the, with the cameras and online all the time. I think it's changed from the standpoint of some of the rulemaking policy. There were some things that went on where the speaker had a lot of control that could chop the hammer off and take the hammer to your head real quick and end it. And they still have the power, but it's more regulated. There's more caucus involvement. So I think it's a lot of internal changes that have happened to make us work more. And probably the most important is I think that we created a friendly environment between both parties. And that working environment is kind of a model for the rest of the country because you watch what's going on in Washington. Mm -hmm. You're either a D or an R. Nothing else counts. Yeah. And in Indiana, it's not that way. I really believe that. And I think, I mean, yes, we lean this way or we lean that way. Mm -hmm. But we work together, and I think that's the significant. If there have been changes, I think that because the thing that I hated the most was working under an environment where I was just a dot in a chair. Yeah. And that went on. I was in there for, I don't know how many years I was in there, but I mean, uh, the guy from, I don't know what's his name, I forget. I'm, I can, the, the guy the guy that shared the speakers with uh, with our speaker and they, they ended up being the speaker the next time the two years later uh, he was really tough dude nice guy but Mike uh, yeah what was his name I can't remember now how quickly we forget but he was the speaker of the house and he was a nice guy but he didn't get squat yeah. and Bauer was just 
demon. <laughs> he okay. just, he turned, you know, he and I became pretty good friends. I mean, I, I told you about the time I got him in the hallway out there. Yeah. He thought I was going to pop him. But, uh, and I almost did. But uh, uh, he, uh, he ruled that way. I think it was because he's a little guy. You know, he was short. And uh, he, he, it was a power thing with him, you know. And, and uh, it was extremely difficult. So I guess the biggest change is, is I think a Democrat could come in there and they might not have the perfect bill, but they can come over and talk to this guy on the other side or this guy on the other side and maybe come up with something where the two of them can work on a bill. Mm-hmm. And the Democrat carries them. We don't care. You know, let them carry. I don't care if their name's on the bill. You know, I mean, they're, they're, the Democrats would come to me and say, will you go on my bill? I mean, I'd read it and define, yeah, I will. Or, well, I don't like this. Well, let's change that. I'd work it out with them and I'd go on with them. I, I think that that kind of environment is so important and I think we've moved a long way in that direction, and I hope it stays that way because that's how you get things done. That stuff out there in Washington, they just stab each other in the back all the time. I, yeah. I get tired of watching it. Sure. So. Um, how have the people of Indiana changed, do you think? I think the, I, I just think the social environment has changed drastically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People today are all, you, you, when I was a kid, we sit around the dinner table eight. Today you go to a restaurant and everybody's talking to their phones. Mm-hmm. They're not even talking to each other, the whole family. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, uh, the, the husband and wife both work outside the home and they're c- both very career-oriented and they don't spend as much time with the family. I think that the education system has changed drastically to take any kind of a value system mm-hmm. out of the education. Now when I say value, so, oh, you talking about Christian, I'm talking about you teach people right and wrong. When they took the Ten Commandments off the walls in schools, mm-hmm. thou shalt not kill. How's that going? I hope that influences me. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but I still don't understand why that happened. But I, and I think that, that there has to be some standard of what I call acceptable behavior. And how do you gauge it? Do you gauge that with sick, uh, sick uh, community people? Do you right. do it with Muslims, Christians, Catholics? How do you, but you have some standard, and I think that, that standard's been lost, and particularly in the education that's really been taken away. Uh, when I went to school once a week with parents' consent, we'd walk over to a little church and have on Monday afternoon and have a little Bible study thing. But my mom had to sign for it, or I couldn't go. Yeah. But they don't do that anymore. Now, if they want to say a prayer, they have to do it before school starts outside of the flagpole. They can't even do it inside the school. Mm-hmm. I just think that's wrong. And it's not because I'm trying to force Christianity. Uh, you know, we got this thing called politically correct. And I'm listening to a book, I'm listening to a book right now by, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name, Volley? The, and he says, you got political correctness, and then there's biblical correctness. And the biblical correctness, if you read it, the only difference is it teaches you to not do harm to other people in different variations. And, and the political correctness, you know, just because somebody says that this is not, you can't say homosexual anymore. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. You can't say blackboard. It's got to be chalkboard. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, to me, the, if we've created that kind of a stigmatism, we need to correct the stigmatism between people. And we're not going to be doing it by doing stuff like that. We need to teach love and care for that person. That person's different than you. That's okay. Mm-hmm. They may not like you. That's okay. You don't have to hate them. And I, I, in my politics, there's people that I don't have much to do with. But I don't hate them. I just right. stay with them. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm nice to them when I say them. I can be real nasty to them, but I don't do that. And so I think that's, that's probably important. Uh, what hasn't changed about the people of Indiana? 
What hasn't changed? Yeah. I think that there overall there's a there's a there's a tendency for some conservative thinking. Uh, there's just been so many changes. I can't really talk about them. The family's not as big as it used to be. One of the things that I see that is moving and that I think is in the positive is the school choice program, which tells me parents mm -hmm. want to do something different. Yeah, and I think that's probably the biggest change. Uh, a poll was taken. I forget who did it now. I was reading it here a while back, and sixty-eight percent of the millennials think there's nothing wrong with socialism. I mean, they don't. They just don't see. Anything. They don't see what the problem is with it. And I was raised in an environment. If you want something, you either work for it or you don't get it. Right. You know, today these kids, a lot of them, they get out of school. Their mom and dad's got careers. Give them a credit card and a new car. They don't know what the real world is. And I, there's a lot of things going on. So. Yeah. So what hasn't changed? I think I think a lot has changed. A lot more than has. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? Their what? Influence on the General Assembly. I want them to know that they have a right to access to them. A right. Not a want, a right. I want them to know that they have the right to visit, to ask questions and talk to their legislators. They have the right to get to communicate with the governor through whatever vehicle they do. Yeah. That's their right because those people were put in there by them. And I think that's it. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything I didn't ask about that you wanted to I think mention? you covered it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a quick tour of my garage. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Sure.